LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Courtney Brown discussing the Farsight Institute's recent remote viewing project, Roswell Crash at Corona. In this closing segment, we touch upon various topics related to the Roswell project, including dark matter and dark energy, evolving paradigms in quantum physics, parallel dimensions and alternate realities, and the prospects for our myopic, warlike and polarized species to finally expand our cosmic horizons and build a better future. Okay, Courtney. Well, there's several really interesting points just to spin off um, what you've just been saying. So I'll just, they kind of hop around a little bit subject wise, but we'll just go to them one by one. First thought is, it's interesting you've been talking about craft, spacecraft, uh, you know, as we see them, how they operate and our tendency towards anthropic thinking, uh, which results in, for example, in our science fiction and space operas like Star Wars. We have craft with wings and they fly in one direction and if they need to turn around then they do a 180 and you know they've got jets or something looking like jets at the back and they've got a nose cone and they've got a cockpit and they all look a lot like the space shuttle, don't they really? And mm, yeah. the, the space shuttle was never a, a spacecraft at all. It's in the upper atmosphere. It's just a jazzed up plane at the end of the day. But that, I think, has a great effect on all our considerations in the areas that we've been talking about, life and any form of existence or tech or just other realms of, of existence full stop, is that we want to impose, uh, we need to impose, or we can do almost nothing else but impose our, what we know already, onto that. And I think that that really can can definitely hamper our imagination sometimes. And I can imagine that there would be occasions when people in whatever situation would deny what might their perceptions in front of them might be or deny an, an idea or a possibility because, well, it, it couldn't be because nothing like that exists, nothing like that could exist extrapolated from what we already know. But then we have to allow the possibility of these quantum leaps in existence, in uh, imagination, um, along the lines that you describe. So, uh, just in general, I think anthropic thinking can really hinder our um, our own imaginations. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of any type of thinking, beginning of time. It, the probably the very first sentient beings that ever existed, they probably thought the same way. I mean, just look at Columbus. Everyone said, you know, what do you mean you want to? go out there and discover new worlds, new realms. And they can't be out there. Look, obviously, it, and ocean stops out there. It drops off. <laughs> so, I mean, they just, you know, they look at what's there and they just assume everything that is there exists. And there are famous stories of early 
sailboats that traveled to the like Polynesian islands, islands out in the in the you know primitive realms, and the people that they encountered there couldn't see the boats. They couldn't see the sailboats because it was out of their realm of thinking. And so the Europeans who got off on you know smaller boats that would carry them to shore, they had to talk with these people, the natives. And describe to them the larger boat and, and then draw it on the sand and describe it. And then eventually they sort of figured out that there must be a bigger boat. And then when they looked out, then they could see it. But they initially couldn't see the bigger boat with the sails and everything. So we have this anthropomorphic way of visualizing the entire existence that we have that has to be compatible with what we, what we assume to be the reality that we see and it's really hard to break through that it takes it's that's one of the reasons farsight exists that's one of our jobs is to help humanity break through that in a productive way that leads humanity to a better place than it is right now if you look at where we are now we're a war-driven we're polarized highly polarized civilization that's if if we leave things go just the way they are it's it's the outcome is going to be clear It'll be a complete societal civilization destruction. I mean, we're talking about the end of life on Earth. And because it's so obvious, we're so polarized. If you just let things continue, the weaponry will get more, the violence will get more, terrorism will eventually have nuclear weapons. I mean, it's kind of, the response will be bigger. You're going to be, you know, you add a hundred years, a thousand years to what we have now, it's going to be worse. And, you can't sort of look at any type of peaceful setting that we sort of have at any one point and think that's going to be the place we're going to land. If you look at the Holocaust uh, during the World War II period, there are 11 million people that died uh, as a result of the Holocaust. But we were lucky with the Holocaust because it happened when our weapons were relatively primitive. They had tanks and aircraft and they had uh, gunpowder and things like that. So imagine the Holocaust happening at a time when there was atomic weaponry or, you know, a thousand years from now when there's weaponry of things that we can't even imagine. So it's the big mistake is to assume that the Holocaust happened, World War II happened back then and that was only because those people were really stupid. <clears throat> they shouldn't have done that type of stuff, and we're better now. That's the big mistake. The, the mistake is to assume that this couldn't happen again. It could happen again, because these are humans. These are humans, and humans did that to each other. And so the big, the big thing, the big picture that Farsight is here for is to help change the way humans look at existence. And when... Humans look at existence differently. They will see a bigger picture. We're very similar now to the Polynesian natives who couldn't see the sailboats of these visitors from Europe that ever that had, had come. And we're very similar to those Polynesians in the sense of we're saying, well, we can't see how spacecraft could be here. I mean, like, doesn't fit into our way of thinking. We are here to, at Farsight, to help describe science as being inadequate, 
for currently describing what we now know to exist. A new set of science is going to be, a new set of scientific principles is going to be necessary. All of academia is going to have to be rewritten. rewritten. I mean, it won't affect, the widespread recognition of the remote building phenomenon in Israel will not affect French classes and German classes and things like that, but it will affect almost everything else. Um, it will affect all of physics, for example. It will affect all of the social sciences. Psychology won't be recognizable, if, you know, based on what it is today. And so the same with physics, it won't be recognizable. I mean, they'll still have classical mechanic courses, but it will be with the understanding that it's a subset within a larger realm that has to be explained. And so, and the social sciences will have to change from top to bottom. Because not only are you going to be talking about a, a new way of thinking about reality, but, you know, where people live and the interactions of extraterrestrials will be a common phenomenon that we're talking about. And it won't be something like the extraterrestrials just discovered us now. But obviously they've been coming here for, you know, the beginning of time. So this is, I mean, this is a, this is a stop along the way for places. So it's obviously something that we're going to have to deal with. And then even if you look at the two great pillars of science, and when you look at mainstream science and they ask, and you ask them, what is the two great achievements, the biggest things, the pillars that define what science is, modern science? They always say the same thing. It's Darwin and Freud. <laughs> what does the remote viewing tell us? The remote viewing tell us, tells us that Freud is a very, very incomplete understanding of anything. I mean, remote viewing is not understandable from anything that's coming out of Freud. It means that the human personality extends beyond the physical realm and that we are a manifestation of something that is much bigger. So the real Greg Moffat, the real Courtney Brown, are like huge entities that extend through time and space. And we are these small little projections in this particular moment in earth time space-time reality and that somehow we are connected to those larger entities of ourselves i mean none of that is covered in freud so then go to darwin okay look i'm not complaining about evolution i, I know evolution exists but the whole idea that humans popped out of an ape 200,000 years ago that is so stupid you can't pop a human out of an ape in 200,000 years and get to an advanced technological civilization the way we have it now it just cannot happen and so i mean i'm and i'm not debating that evolution i'm just saying our particular interpretation of evolution of of the origin of humanity the origin of existence is nuts and there is a a ton a ton of archaeological evidence that clearly indicates that our current understanding of civilization and stuff like that is just wrong. Uh, Michael Cremo did a big book, for example, huge book, Forbidden Archaeology, of, 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 of objects, of evidence that clearly indicates that intelligent life existed on Earth way beyond three, four thousand years ago, <laughs> which is the, the party line. I mean, it just, and if you look at archaeological evidence that is just recent, for example, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, that's an interesting site. Really, it's only been discovered in the last ten some odd years. And that civilization dates back at least ten thousand years. And they buried themselves, meaning they took a whole city and 
put itself underneath the ground, buried itself, like covered itself up. So you don't do that for no reason. There has to be something they were burying themselves to protect themselves from. Something must have been happening. So probably was some type of solar and solar evidence. I mean, Robert Schock, a Boston University professor, has an interesting theory about intermittent coronal mass ejections that produce havoc here on Earth. And even NASA clearly states that that will happen. It's called the Carrington events from the the, uh, the scientists that observed the one back in 1859 when there was a coronal mass ejection that happened to be pointing towards Earth from our sun. And the only technology we had back in those days was the telegraph system. But the sparks were over an inch long that shot out from our telegraph system and it shocked the telegraph operators. Um, I mean, it, it, it shut down the telegraph system. If that type of, and that was a relatively minor coronal mass ejection, if that coronal mass ejection or something bigger happened today, and it will happen, there's no dispute that it will happen, all of our electronics would be totally fried, period, point blank, it's done. And we're back at, you know, we're, talk, we're, we're talking, we're, we're hoofing it to get around and I mean, everything stops. Well, you mentioned Michael Cremo. I would also recommend, uh, uh, apart from Forbidden Archaeology, his kind of magnum opus, his book, Human Devolution. And I actually did an interview with uh, Michael all about that. And I've, I've also interviewed Robert Schock, um, mm-hmm. who you mentioned, and also Graham Hancock. You might be aware mm-hmm. of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least of, course, of course. Kind of like alternative archaeology history guys. Um, yeah. No, so- none of that can be taught. None of that can be taught in universities. All of that is literally forbidden. Hmm. So we're, we're talking about a, a time frame where that's going to have to expire. Those, you know, you may not speak this. That's going to have to go at, uh, in the university systems. But there's, so that's one of the reasons Farsight exists to help bring that time about. Courtney, as we wind things up for today, I just want to throw you a final couple of curveballs, okay? Relating to the overall nature of the Roswell project you know which is right. the, you know, the possible possibility of, of alien life and its interaction with our own okay mm-hmm. two curveballs here one is we're talking about interdimensionality a few minutes ago you get you know, did quite a long segment on that i was speaking with a harvard professor a couple of days ago and she's a particle physicist one of her specialities in research is dark matter Mm-hmm. And this is something that for anybody who knows about it, if you don't know it, Google it, look it up, but Wikipedia, whatever. For all Wikipedia's faults, it'll give you a basic grounding in the ideas about dark matter. It's supposed to be this, well, we don't know what it is. The whole point is, but it makes up most of what is. And mm-hmm. we have no idea what it is, where it comes from, what it does, but we perceive it somehow a thing, somehow inert, that the only thing that matters is the matter that makes up you and I and the world we live in. Uh, mm-hmm. But, this Harvard professor, she's thinking, well, what if dark matter, given that it's the bulk of the universe, is actually an active living realm, very diverse in its own right, and with all sorts of who knows what in there that we just can't perceive. So I was just simply wondering, and I know I'm just throwing this at you unprepared, but have you read anything about dark matter? And if so, have you maybe considered dark matter in terms of the realm of entities or worlds or things that might interact with our own that in terms of, you know, I'm just thinking again about the inter 
dimensionality aspect we talked about. Yeah, you know, that that totally fits within the concept of things existing in realms that we don't see. So I don't have any specific statement to make about dark matter per se, but if something does exist, be it matter that we do see or dark matter, it still must exist in the concept of waves, energy that are in states of superposition that combine together to produce a blip or decide. Uh, when something exists, it exists out of essentially a distortion of space-time. So when you see a vacuum that has nothing in it, that's not a vacuum with something in it. That vacuum has, it's a texture, it's like a white piece of paper. You know, that, it just doesn't have any marks on it. It's still, it's still, it's got frequencies in it. Zillions and zillions and zillions of frequencies in it, all energy moving. And when something enters that vacuum and produces a thing, like a particle, a planet, whatever, well, that thing is a warping or a distortion in the vacuum space-time reality. So if you're talking about dark matter, well, it would have to conform to that basic principle. So there would be stuff we call dark matter, and they would it would still be energy-based, and that would be frequency-based, and that would still have states of superposition, and that would still have stuff that happened in those states of superposition. Why we don't see it, um, that's going to be something that the physicists will talk about and worry about and everything. But the very idea of there being dark matter does sort of make sense from uh, the, the discussions that we were having earlier. If the quantum frequency or the quantum signature was sort of near our realm but not exactly hitting our realm, it would be dark. We wouldn't see it. But if it was there, it was if it was close enough, it could influence us. Just like the beat frequency that you get when you hit middle C and the B that's right next to it, those frequencies interact with destructive and constructive interference to the point that you can hear it and produce a wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. But what if you didn't go to the highest B on the keyboard and produce two frequencies, middle C and that highest B, and get very little constructive or destructive interference, very little interaction between those frequencies. What if you went over, what if you went up just, uh, you know, a couple octaves and had a, a higher B and middle C? You know, how much frequency interaction would there actually be? There'd be more than what it was with the B that's on the high end of the keyboard, but there'd be less than what there is with the B that's right next to middle C. At what point do you call that interaction with the higher B, but not the highest B, at what point do you call that interaction when you do with middle C and a higher frequency? At what point, when you go higher, do you no longer really see that? Do you no longer really hear it? Does it become sort of irrelevant? At what point, if you translate that to physical matter, does it become dark matter? It would still influence us enough that we would detect its existence, but it wouldn't be something you really feel like writing home about. <laughs> that's my that's my sort of thoughts about that with respect uh, to dark matter. Okay, well, thank you for running with that. Okay, second curveball before we finish. 
and you mentioned Freud and what this idea I'm coming up with here is uh, is Jungian. In fact, I think uh, Carl Jung wrote a book more or less on this subject uh, with regard to UFOs. And if this is, I'm sure this is an idea that you will have come across. But in the light of the uh, of, of the new you know Farsight project, I just wanted to run this past you again. And I don't think if there was anything to this idea that it would in any way undermine the work that you guys have done. But with regarding UFOs, extraterrestrials, um, just other life forms in other realms, what do you think of the idea, you know, Jungian idea, that we create these entities, these realms, we project them somehow, it's part of our subconscious, and this also plays into the idea of collective unconscious and mass sightings of UFOs and other, you know, unexplained phenomena and how some people can see them and others can't, even when they're in the same space at the same time. Yeah, it's an interesting point. There are two ways to go at this. The one way, which I don't agree with, is that we, because of our collective unconsciousness or collective unconscious act to, as a society, create these things, and thus they are not real. They are not objectively existing. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one way to go at it, and that's where mainstream science has enveloped Carl Jung, by saying, okay, he said that we're basically fantasizing collectively about this, so UFOs aren't real. So that direction of taking Carl Jung's interpretation, I don't agree with, but I will borrow something from it as I move in a different direction. It would be true that we create these things, but that does not mean that they're objectively not real, that they're objectively, uh, you know, imaginary, that they do not factually exist. They have to exist in our minds in order for us to be able to conceive of them in the first place. So just like the early Polynesians couldn't see the boats or sailboats the, the, that, that the travelers from Europe took, when they initially arrived very similarly we can't conceive some people can't conceive of these travelers from other dimensions other realms other planets other space you know other places they can't conceive of that so they say that it must be factually inaccurate but there must be an invention a delusion of the conscious mind but the reality is you do have to be able to imagine it you do have to be able to create it within your mind in order to see it. And that does not mean that it's not real. It means that you had to link your mind with that reality in order to be able to see it. It's very much like the Harry Potter movie, where Harry Potter was killed by by Voldemort, and temporarily, and he went to sort of his version of um, the hereafter, where he met with Dumbledore, who had died previously, and Dumbledore was talking to him about Harry Potter, about whether he should go back. And he said, well, that's going to be up to you. And then Harry Potter says, but look, is this is this just, is anything about this real? Is this just all in my head? And then Dumbledore looked at him and he said, Harry, of course it's all in your head. But that doesn't mean it's not real. 
And that was Dumbledore's final statement. And then Harry Potter decided to come back, and there he was, and he defeated Voldemort. And so, you know, of course the stuff's in our head, the UFOs. But that doesn't mean it's not real. So I will take from Jung the fact that we create these things in our collective unconscious. But that doesn't mean that they're not real. That means that we have to be able to imagine it in order to be able to see it. And I will take this one step further. You see, it's long been known that nothing exists in the quantum realm unless you observe it in some way. But you have to, it has to register in some way. And the old quantum mechanical way of thinking, the Copenhagen interpretation, has to be observed in some way. But it doesn't have to be a physical observation like with your eyes. It has to be registered in some way, machinery or whatever. Something has to... And Einstein used to mock his quantum mechanical colleagues by saying, do you mean that the moon wouldn't exist if I didn't look at it? <laughs> and But the basic idea is, yes, in a sense, in some way, things have to be registered or observed or somehow interacted with in some way in order to exist in the quantum realm. They, that's what they pop out. And in the quantum interpretation that's tied to the Copenhagen interpretation, then it pops out of reality and you have a you have a thing. But that basically means that in order for you to see something, in order for you to see something, it has to exist. But in your reality, it doesn't exist except as a probabilistic smear until you see it. <laughs> That's the trick, you see. By observing something, you pop it out of the quantum mechanical realm at the probabilistic smear state, and it becomes in sync with your reality, and then it, you actually literally create it by thinking it. This means something. Greg, this is the, the take-home message. Anything that you can think about somehow exists and it is impossible for you to think about anything if it doesn't exist that's the bottom line the take home from Carl Jung's yes of course we're creating it but that doesn't make it mean it's not real if you can think it it exists and only something that exists can you think about it is not possible to think about something that does not exist. It's a very interesting conclusion to draw from that, but in some way, shape, or form, somebody has to think of something in order for it to pop out of that probabilistic sphere and be something. Well, Einstein was clearly a genius, um, but I also think there were places that he was not prepared or willing to go the thing about Einstein is the following. It's an interesting thing that you mention, Einstein. You see, he was a genius, there's no question, in both his special and general relativity theories. They were great. And I'm a mathematician, so I'm really appreciative of the fact that the math is beautiful. But he had limits that he set for himself. He had intellectual boundaries that he was not willing to extend beyond. And it was so fiercely felt with him that Dodd does not play dice, that the probabilistic stuff within quantum mechanical thinking was wrong. Then he collaborated with two other people, Poldowski and Rosen, to come up with a paper called the Einstein, Poldowski and Rosen paper <laughs> that famously put Einstein's weight 
his prestige behind it and essentially shut down developments in quantum mechanics for like a long time, decades. By Einstein using his intellectual, by using his, his prestige, he basically made it an embarrassing for people to study quantum mechanics. And the thinking and the evolution um, just simply stopped. And it wasn't ended until a mathematician came around called John Bell, who came up with the now known as the Bell's Theorem, that proved that the quantum mechanical stuff didn't have to be relate, relating to what they were calling hidden variables, other things that it really did have this spooky action in a distance. And it was only then that that courageous mathematician, who actually published it in a relatively obscure journal, but it was eventually passed around, uh, opened up research into quantum mechanics again. We had to wait for John Bell to do this. And when that happened, then progress in quantum mechanical thinking could restart again. So it's not just that people have their own limitations and it affects them, but sometimes mainstream people, big ones, intelligent people, brilliant people, brilliant as Einstein, really have such strongly held ideas that they interfere with the continued development of intellectual thought in realms that later is discovered to be obvious and necessary. And Einstein played his role in that as well. So yes, he made great advances, but he also stopped a lot of development because of his own limitations. Is it unfortunate that he did that? No. It was actually really great that he did that because it helped show us the limitations that we have as human beings. And that's the more important lesson to draw from it. We were, it was, it was better for us to know our own limitations than it was for us to get more rapid understanding of quantum mechanics. So we could give up the 30 years of lack of growth in quantum mechanical thinking in exchange for the wisdom of learning, hey, if it can happen to Einstein, it can happen to anybody. That was an important lesson to take home. Yes, and I think just from a layman's perspective that you know Einstein did so much, pioneered so much, but I don't think he thought of himself as somehow some omega point in physics, in science in general, unlike some of the people who come before him, you know, like, uh, well, this is the final answer or physics is settled, we're just waiting for a few details. I don't, details, know. I don't you know, know, Greg. I don't know, Greg. He had a big ego. He had a huge ego. In fact, when he um, came out with his general theory of relativity, he made a mistake. Um, it wasn't a, it was a, like almost, it wasn't quite a typo, but it was just a, it was just a mathematical mistake. And a, a mathematician came about not too long after. Uh, really, he was so overwhelmingly impressed, and he he pointed out, "Hey, this was this was a mistake. You took the derivative wrong. <laughs> it was it was just a it was a careless error." And but when you didn't do that mistake and you followed through with the math, you came up with the understanding of black holes that black holes could exist. And Einstein, for 10 years, ferociously fought that, saying, oh, it wasn't a mistake, I did it this way. But 10 years later, he finally said, oh, what the heck, all right, so I made a mistake. <laughs> well, could we even say then that maybe um, Einstein was kind of like a transitionary phase between a type of scientist it was it kind of like the results are all in, and a type of scientist that maybe is still beginning to emerge, 
that kind of no, realizes that no. we're, we're not close to we, knowing everything? He wasn't a transitionary period person. He was just the way we are today. Okay. We are human beings with egos, with personalities, with limitations in the way we think. And that's the way we are now. And he was a good representation of that. And that's the way we are in the future. And we have to just deal with that. Recognizing our own limitations is one of the things we have to do as a species. And I assume that 200,000 years from now, we'll still have people with that same type of thinking, that we'll still have our own limitations. It's just something we have to recognize. It's like, it's like um, Clint Eastwood said in, in uh, Magnum Force, uh, playing Dirty Harry, when he finally defeated his big enemy. He looked at the guy and said, man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Well, Courtney, today we started out talking about the latest Farsight Institute project, Roswell Crash at Corona, but that spun off like a flying saucer, shall we say, into, <laughs> into like a hundred other different areas and it was all the better for it. Just before we close off for today, just tell listeners, um, I mean, the Crash at Corona project is available to view online. Uh, I believe it's also available to buy on DVD now. Uh, yeah. The website to go to, of course, is farsight.org. That's like seeing far. F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T dot org. And you'll see the big banner at the top, Roswell Crash of Corona. And there's two ways to see it. Uh, remember, the Mysteries Projects are the ones that fund our time cross and all of our other stuff. We have no other sources of income. We don't get any National Science Foundation grants or governmental funding or anything like that. So... When you buy the Mysteries Projects and watch them, it's like going to the movies. It's worth seeing. If online, if you get it through Vimeo, you buy it and you have it for life. But it's only 15 bucks, and that's the uh, same as you get for any movie. But if you get it as a DVD, it's a little more expensive, and it's in two parts. So part one is the crash, and part two is the origins. You can buy it or rent it, but uh, I always suggest buying it. It's not much more expensive, just a couple bucks, and you get to keep it for life, download it on your computer and things like that. Splendid. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>